Hello and welcome to The Medical Take, a podcast for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. Uh, my name is Daniel Lina. I'm an acute medicine trainee in the west of Scotland. And I'm Ariane Laws, a consultant physician and rheumatologist uh, in Paisley. And today we're joined by... Hi, I'm Nicola Cooper. I'm a consultant in acute medicine uh, and I'm based at the Royal Derby Hospital in the UK. Today we're joined by Dr Cooper, who's here to talk to to us today about clinical reasoning. Uh, I think we're going to illustrate that with a a case. So just to take it from the top, I will hand over to Dr Cooper to talk us through that case. So um, clinical reasoning is the thinking and decision-making processes in clinical practice, and there's actually loads of research on it. Um, It's quite a complex area, but what I thought we'd do is I'd just tell you a story. And then after that, we're going to do a kind of uh, cognitive autopsy. (laughs) So we're going to look at the thinking and decision-making processes that maybe were going on behind it. And this is really useful in particular uh, if you're a teacher, but also if you're, um, you know, a trainee or junior doctor or a learner as well. And of course, we're all learners, aren't we? (laughs) Anyway, so I'm going to tell you this story. So a 75-year-old woman presented to hospital around 5 p.m. with breathlessness. And she had been told by her oncologist a few weeks before that she was anemic uh, in the clinic. And she was told to report to hospital if she got breathless or dizzy, uh, because that might mean she needs a blood transfusion. So her oncologist was just giving her, you know, advice. Sure enough, she felt breathless and she turned up to Amy and she said, um, I'm breathless. And my oncologist told me that if I'm breathless, it means I'm anemic and I need a blood transfusion. So that that was the story. Now, her only past medical history was breast cancer. <clears throat> She'd had a mastectomy. She was undergoing adjuvant chemo. She was normally fit and well. She was independent. She wasn't taking any regular medicines, just some PRN uh, cyclozine for, for nausea and vomiting. And um, on presentation, her haemoglobin was 84 grams per litre. So if you use different units, that's 84 <laughs> uh, grams per deciliter but anyway it was 84 and that was the same as before on examination her vital signs were normal and examination of the chest heart and abdomen was normal 12 lead ecg was normal chest x-ray was normal and apart from this hemoglobin of 84 all her other blood tests were normal so white cells platelets um, everything and so the ed doctor diagnosed breathlessness due to anemia and arranged for her to be admitted for a blood transfusion. Now, of course, nowadays we wouldn't necessarily admit someone, would we? <laughs> they, go to, uh, they go to same day emergency care or something. But anyway, this is the story. <clears throat> and so she was admitted uh, with this diagnosis. And then on the medical assessment unit, the, the junior doctor who clerked her in said the same thing. At 11pm, the registrar reviewed the patient, said the same thing. Um, but actually, um, someone had done a troponin, oh, a random troponin. <laughs> the front door troponin. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it feels these days like our, our front door patients always get a D-dimer, always get a troponin, and more often than not, you're trying to explain that away. So um, someone had done a, a, a high-sensitivity troponin T uh, because the patient had mentioned palpitations. Of course, that's not really an indication for a troponin, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, the result was one, two, six. Uh, reference range in that hospital is not to 13. So the, the registrar reviewing the patient, this is now 11pm, uh, did what we'd probably all do, um, scratch their head a bit, but asked for a repeat troponin and ECG. So I guess at this point, we can all think a little bit about what we think might be going on. Um, 
but I'll carry on with the rest of the story. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can dissect it afterwards. So the next morning, uh, another registrar who happened to be doing the ward round in, in that bay uh, saw the patient with an oncology nurse specialist. And, and they again said, yep, um, symptomatic anemia. The, the patient was very well. Uh, like I say, normal vital signs, sitting there, feeling a bit of a fraud. Um, so they said, yep, blood transfusion, breathlessness due to anemia. <clears throat> and then uh, sort of uh, a medical consultant came along and saw the patient and uh, something didn't seem quite right. Let's put it that way. Um, and the thing that wasn't quite right was that the patient's hemoglobin, like I mentioned before, was 84 when, when she'd seen her oncologist. Uh, and it was 84 now. In other words, it hadn't changed, and yet she was breathless. So why was she breathless now? And what was this troponin result all about? Because she didn't have any chest pain at any time, uh, her ECG was normal, so it seemed unlikely she had an ACS, you know, an acute coronary syndrome. And so um, the consultant did something that no one else had done, and, um, and, and it's called the unpacking principle, where you unpack all the available information. So... They said, okay, uh, I don't think this is a problem due to anemia because you were anemic before uh, and, you, and you're the same now. So tell me exactly what happened. So the patient said she was in the supermarket the day before when she suddenly felt lightheaded. She was suddenly overcome with palpitations, lightheadedness and feeling quite breathless. And um, she had to sit down. In fact, she was quite unwell. And this lasted for about 10 minutes <clears throat> and it all seemed to settle down. But she said she'd not felt quite right since, and she couldn't really pin it down. And the consultant explored it a bit more. You know, have you been to the loo? Are you breathless when you walk to the loo? You know, and, and although she was a lot better, she just said she, she didn't feel her breathing was quite right. And that was literally all the consultant could pin down. So um, the consultant ordered a test. <laughs> uh, I'm going <laughs> to let the listeners think about what they might want to order and leave that hanging for a second. Um but anyway, the test was uh, an urgent CTPA, and that showed bilateral PEs with right heart strain. <clears throat> so that's the story. Um, but the reason I chose this story is because it's such a fantastic story to really dissect um, the, the different types of knowledge required for good clinical reasoning, as well as something to do with the way we think as well. Um, and also to introduce this idea of cognitive biases which are actually a bit controversial, and I'll tell you why they're controversial in a minute. But, but um, anyway, do you have any thoughts before we get going? The other thing, yes, it's a very illustrative case, as you say. I, I think it will also sound very familiar to all the medical trainees, consultants, even even maybe some medical students listening. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's an exceptionally familiar case, isn't it? Mm. And uh, PE is uh, in the old um, BTS uh, guideline for PE. There's this lovely sentence which says, PE is the most overdiagnosed and the most underdiagnosed diagnosis in medicine. <laughs> so that's probably why it's a good one. Yeah, and like, yeah, you're right. This is such a classical case. And it's as the consultant going around and doing the ward round, you obviously have, like, much as you have lots of patients to see, you also have all of the test results to hand and you mm. do have that luxury of you know being able to sort of pull all of those things together and go this just doesn't seem oh like there's something funny going on here um but yeah this is a perfect kind of case where actually you see people getting stuck in a rut of mm -hmm. 
the momentum of this being what is wrong and somebody else has just been asked to chase this test and prescribe something for this mm-hmm. patient afterwards and review them when they hit the next ward, but nobody's actually questioned the underlying. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. I think if you mm-hmm. take... I'm sure any physician in that chain, any clinician in that chain, if you took them aside and had this exact conversation with them outside the scenario, they can see everything happening. They they, they would probably Mm -hmm. say exactly what you said. Oh, yeah, God, I want an urgent CTPA. But it's so funny about how when we're in that moment. Well, it's also how you frame it, because if the patient comes in saying to you, oh, it's my anemia, this is what my oncologist said. But if that same patient came in and said, oh, I'm currently being treated for cancer and I'm suddenly breathless and I had palpitations, like, mm. I think you'd get two very different answers, wouldn't you? Yeah, and exactly. That's what you've referred to there is something called problem representation, which I'm going to talk about in, in mm-hmm. a second because that's very powerful. And there's some research on that as well. Um, yeah, so... Um, so there's a few things going on here. So I'll just mention this idea of cognitive biases because there's a lot of misunderstandings <clears throat> about them actually in in sort of normal lay people, if that makes sense. So um, in medicine, we, um, well, in life, in fact, we have two main ways of thinking and, and making decisions. We have a fast, intuitive, pattern-recognizing way called type one processing. And we have a slow, more deliberate, um, it uses working memory, it, it's, it's language-based, um, uh, more deliberate, analy- analytical, conscious way of thinking and decision-making, and that's called type two processing. And um, the, the fact of the matter is that humans are cognitive misers, that's what psychologists call us. We're always looking to, to conserve cognitive energy. <clears throat> And um, with learning and experience, but also due to evolutionary reasons and other reasons, we we pattern recognize and we just try and categorize things. And and that's how we make most of our decisions most of the time. So with learning, you you do stuff without thinking. So think about driving your car. If you drive a car, you've you've probably finished a night shift and uh, can't even remember how you got home. That's how automatic stuff is when you've even a complex thing once you've learned it. Yeah. So um, in the popular literature, there's this idea that we make mistakes, we make silly mistakes because we're in type one mode. But actually, that's not quite true um, because these shortcuts are very fast. They're very accurate. Uh, Experts use type one processing most of the time. If you try and get experts to slow down and be more deliberate, they actually make more mistakes. So um, type one processing is a function of knowledge and experience, basically. It's what experts do. And you can make mistakes in type two processing as well. You can be applying the wrong rules or um, uh, you might have faulty knowledge um, going about things the wrong way. So so it's not um, cognitive biases in, in psychology. They're just shortcuts. Uh, bias is a very negative word. but a very uh, biased uh, word. <laughs> in psychology, it's just a shortcut. And they generally get us where we need to go. Yeah. So there's lots of different types of biases in the psychology literature. There's this uh, social biases, memory biases, decision-making biases, that type of thing. And uh, in medicine, uh, there's definitely lots of them around, but there's a, there's a big discussion as to how much of it is due to knowledge gaps and how much of it is due to just, you know, the way we think. And it's probably a bit of both, but we, we're not too sure because no one's done that research. So here we can see quite a few things going on. So the first thing going on is what you've referred to. It's called anchoring. Um, Anchoring is, uh, it's the common human tendency to rely too heavily on the first piece of information offered, Mm -hmm. the anchor, when making decisions, right? So the patient came and said, I'm breathless because I'm anemic. 
So the patient offered the anchor. And then it's actually really difficult once that anchor is set f- for, for thought to to get away from it. So all, all the other information is interpreted around the anchor. Now, businesses use anchoring all the time. <clears throat> the recommended retail price is an anchor. You think you've got a great deal on your baked beans that week. <laughs> they're telling you the recommended retail price is this inflated price. Um, and they've done experiments with house buying and estate agents setting prices and all this kind of stuff. So it's... Um, it's, it's quite powerful. So that's called anchoring. The, the next thing we can see in this case is something called search satisficing. That's a, a combination of the words suffice and satisfy. <laughs> and that's when we stop searching because we found something that fits, even though um, there's something probably that, that would fit a lot better, you know, be more... Yeah, it, it doesn't quite fit, <clears throat> but it yeah. fits enough. Yeah. And... Uh, what's interesting about this is that, that novices tend to do this more, or, or learners, junior doctors, because they actually solve problems in a different way to experts. So um, learners actually solve problems by using what's called forward, uh, so, sorry, backward thinking. Backward thinking. That means, and you've seen this, they gather all the information and then they look back at it all and figure out what fits. Mm-hmm. And because of, and this is just a function of their their stage of learning. They can't help it. <laughs> um, and because maybe some knowledge gaps and things like that, they'll they'll just try and fit the best fit, but they may mm-hmm. not be aware of something that fits better. Um, whereas experts do what's called forward thinking. So experts will sort of, um, you know, when they're taking a history, you'll see that they ask a lot less questions, but they'll craft a course through. So, you know, if someone's got chest pain, they'll, they'll want to know um, if, it, if it's... Um, you know, uh, a pressure in the chest or a sharp pain. And then they'll want to know if it's related to exertion or not. And then, the, you know, and then they'll get to angina dead quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So search satisficing is, is when you found something that fits and then you stop searching because let's face it, cognitive effort is involved. <laughs> and, um, we do this in life all the time, actually. It's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, it, it's probably, uh, an evolutionary thing so and, and we do it you know imagine imagine you go to a restaurant with a massive menu you, you yeah. literally can't be bothered to to try and figure out what is the best dish that will give you the best experience that night and so you help for the steak i'm gonna find the first thing that i like and yeah. i'm I'll, I'll go for that yeah, yeah i feel this i went to dim i went to dim some restaurant with 200 options recently i was like <laughs> And then afterwards, you wish you had what your friend had after all, you know. You know. But um, yeah, so, so that's another thing going on. Um, as well as search satisfying, there was confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is, is the tendency to, uh, to look for stuff that confirms or supports our, you know, hypothesis uh, and to sort of ignore stuff that is going against it, uh, even when it's clearly there, you know, like the troponin, the glaring troponin. Um, and um, <clears throat> psychology experiments find that people do tend to test their hypotheses in a one-sided way. They look for evidence that's most consistent with what they already believe, you know, and, and so social media and conspiracy theories are a fantastic example <laughs> of, of this. And then overarching all of this, we've got something called diagnostic momentum. So <clears throat> that's um, the tendency for a diagnosis to stick, uh, even despite a lack of supporting evidence, and it gets handed on. It often starts with a, a non-medical opinion, you know, that the patient or a relative and, and it gets handed on with increasing certainty to the next. And mm-hmm. 
if a consultant has seen the patient, then the, then that's the diagnosis is really sticky. <laughs> and it can be difficult for people to just stand back and have that critical, healthy scepticism, you know. And, and I always say to my junior doctors, you know, you all need to insert a chip in your brain. And it's called, what's, what's the evidence for this? What else could it be? Chip. And it just yeah. takes a moment to, and in fact, that is an example of uh, a very um, brief example of what reflection during decision making can be. And that's been found to be one of the most consistent cognitive interventions uh, to improve our decision making, actually. Um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> when, when, when you're saying, I think this really resonates. I'm sure it'll be resonating with a lot of people listening. Um, one, of, one of the things I'm interested in is handover. Um, but I, I think it can also be one of these places where, whether it's a, a medical handover from, you know, the little bits of paper, whether it's nursing handover, or even when it's the ward round every day when someone has written, you know, 79-year-old gentleman issues one, two, three. As you say, that you very rarely take a step back and go, Wait, what's our evidence for that, actually? And what, once these things get onto a handover or get in the notes, they're quite hard to shake. Yes, yes. And they're much harder to shake if you're a, a junior doctor. Yeah. But what's really interesting to me is why, why they occurred. Um, and so what we do know is that good decision making uh, is really dependent on knowledge. So there's loads of, it's well established in medicine that knowledge is what makes you a good decision maker. But this, take care. Knowledge doesn't mean facts. doesn't mean you've passed exams. <laughs> That's yeah. like saying um, the, the ingredients is the same as the cake. That's my favorite yeah. analogy. Yeah. Um, in education, there's different types of knowledge. Uh, so not just factual knowledge, but also um, conceptual knowledge. This is really important. So how it all hangs together, how it fits um, uh, then procedural knowledge, how to go about stuff, and then finally metacognitive knowledge, so being aware of your own thinking, of your own learning, what you know and what you don't know. And um, that's the role of an expert teacher, to help people understand facts and ideas in a conceptual framework and how, how to go about stuff and, and to think about their own thinking. That's why we need expert teachers, in fact. Otherwise, you could be a doctor, you know, from Googling things. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a way, as you say, it's a difference, isn't it? It's, it's not just facts. It's a function of experience and metacognition and these other sorts of things. And I think it's, yes, I think it's when you start to look into all this, you, you go, oh, clinical decision making is one of the, is, is the biggest thing we do. Why are we not taught this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and in fact, um, there's, a, there's an organization uh, that I chair called CREAM, Clinical Reasoning in Medical Education group and we're a we're a sort of charity that campaigns for um clinical reasoning education at medical school and in postgrad programs as in explicit systematic all the way through spiral curriculum um but i guess that there's a challenge and that is teaching people how to teach it as well um <laughs> So yes, that's a whole other topic as that's, well. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think you you hit on something really important there. Is we we know people learn things much better when it is explicit teaching, because yeah. I think again I, I don't think any of the things that we've spoken about so far today will be foreign to anyone listening. Mm -hmm. I, I think it will really resonate, but they've probably not had it explicitly said like this before. And I think you have to give mm -hmm. something a language and be explicit so we can so we can talk about it. Yes. And in fact, the research shows that if I just teach you about clinical reasoning and cognitive biases, it doesn't make you any better at making decisions. Um, but it does give us a shared language and a shared vocabulary to then for teachers and learners to have the conversation 
and um, to to talk about the different knowledge we need and to have that metacognitive approach to to teaching and and so on. Yeah. So yeah, um, you've sort of talked a bit about how to avoid some of these biases when you were saying about thinking about having that chip in your brain to say uh, what's the evidence for this. And we've talked about one of the things that I found useful about reading the book was actually there's lots of these things that I have thought about, but you're right. Having the language to speak about it is like, it'll make it much easier to teach the sort of thing that you just sort of feel that this diagnosis isn't right. And this is what, and it's hard to explain that. Mm. Um, how would you, how would you teach this? Just like, what's one of the ways to get people to think about these errors and avoid them yeah we've probably yeah. inspired a bunch of trainees and now they want to start <laughs> what what would be your recommendations to people who are who are resonating this and i find it interesting and want to take things from there well if we dissect this case a little bit more <clears throat> i think um we can we can see some of the things maybe that that fifth doctor possessed or did that helped so i mean it just going back a bit it's not just knowledge but but we know from the literature and expertise and things like that that, that people need to be motivated <laughs> so things that affect your decision making are also motivation mood time pressure we're all very familiar with that um uh, but yeah knowledge really key <clears throat> and also metacognitive skills which which was is ability to think about your own thinking but this fifth doctor did something a bit different so the first thing is critical thinking critical thinking and that is something there's good evidence from schools and and universities that we can teach this and that it increases uh, improves decision making so critical thinking was when that doctor said hang on the anemia you know hemoglobin was 84 you know before it's 84 now therefore this breathlessness can't be due to anemia because the anemia is not new and that's an example of critical thinking <clears throat> and that's something like i say we can teach um a lot of these things we need to teach in the context of solving cases because there's good evidence that teaching teaching you to think about your own thinking and teaching you critical thinking it isn't an isolated generic skill but it has to be taught in the context of practicing with cases because you you have to have you have to have knowledge because you have to know what you're thinking critically about if that makes sense so that's the first thing the, the next thing this doctor probably did was something called problem representation, which we just don't teach at medical school, and it's so important. So problem representation is, it comes from psychology. In psychology, um, there's actually a whole branch of psychology on problem solving. <laughs> you yeah. can buy the Cambridge Handbook of Problem Solving <laughs> if you want to. But um, <clears throat> basically, uh, psychologists describe problem solving as a cycle so first of all you have to recognize there's a problem then you have to um identify it and you have to um represent it before you can attempt to solve it now problem representation means that you 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 have the key features of the problem in your head while you then attempt to solve it so an example would be knowing the r rules of the basketball game while playing the game so, so it's just the key features now, in medicine, we know that language really matters when you're doing problem representation because language and memory are heavily intertwined. So when you see a patient and they talk about, oh, I'm breathless and blah, 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 and this, that, and the other, they're talking in patient's words, yeah, in their own words. Yeah. What we have to do is we now have to take those words and translate them into a, a stripped-down medical version of what the problem is. And that's how we match the patient's own words and data with our illness scripts in long-term memory. So an illness script is a, 
bundle of organized information. Like if I say to you pulmonary embolism, you have a lot of formal and experiential knowledge uh, about how it presents, um, how it plays out, uh, you know, all these kind of things that you have. So there's lots of studies on problem representation uh, and what it is, you might call it the impression, I guess. So it's not the presenting complaint. It's not the history of presenting complaint. It's a synthesis, a summary, an encapsulation of everything, history, exam, maybe initial test results, but using very precise language. So we need to use uh, things called semantic qualifiers. That's things like acute, chronic, intermittent, progressive, mono, poly, uni, bilateral, blah, blah, blah. And then we need to use precise terms. So pleuritic chest pain or thunderclap headache or you know, cardiac sounding chest pain or whatever it might be. And people who can represent problems using very precise language like that have very high diagnostic accuracy when the case is a bit complex relative to them. Mm-hmm. People who can't do that have near zero accuracy. So this is really yeah. important. Now, of course, if the case is simple, that doesn't matter. But if the case is complex to you, this is very powerful. And so I get a bit annoyed when we have the history exam, what's your differential method of teaching? Because it does not work. Uh, like I said, it works for simple cases. If you ask any medical student, if you go and, if you go with some medical students and you go and see a patient with chest pain and then you get the students to summarise and they'll say chest pain, what do you think the students will diagnose? If the medical student says chest pain, the first thing they're going to say is... The, the next thing they'll, they want a troponin to exclude an ACS, even yeah. though often the history... I had this exact thing recently. And as you say, I, I think I almost try and do what you're saying here. I go, okay, let, let's take it back to the top. Tell me what you've actually got here. Mm. And I do try and put them into these, you know, these semantic qualifiers. And if they, and it's almost like trying to guide them to those illness scripts that they, they have been training to, you know, training with mm. up to this point where you go... Well, it sounded pleuritic, didn't it? And you know, to use your ladies, like, and they've got they've got a, a, a neoplastic process going on, don't they? Does that sound like ACS? And they go, no. And it's about starting to correct that, yeah, and guide them towards that this this style of thinking. So there's a reason why uh, consultants and senior doctors try and get medical students to speak like doctors, because mm-hmm. a lot of medical students just talk like you know my mum. <laughs> I don't know if they think they're being cool. I don't know what, you know, but, and then they get annoyed when you try to say, no, you need to use, but it's actually to do with how memory works and how you access your learning from long-term memory. Um, and I think we need to explain that and we need to understand why we're doing it and we need to call it problem representation <laughs> um, because it is very powerful. Uh, like you say, there's a big difference if, if you say to me, oh, this patient's got chest pain, than if you say, oh, this patient's, you know, four weeks post-op knee replacement with left-sided pleuritic chest pain and breathlessness. Yeah. And it's all in leg. <laughs> yeah. So problem representation is, is powerful. And I think, um, you know, so this doctor might have thought, okay, this is a case of acute unexplained breathlessness in a patient with cancer on chemotherapy. So had a bit of a funny turn in the supermarket, actually. Exactly. <laughs> The other thing that I think this fifth doctor did, which we we don't teach so well, is what I call evidence-based history and physical exam. What I mean by that is we do teach, how can I put this? At medical school, we tend to teach prototypes and we teach how illness is presented 200 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> we don't teach, we don't really drill down the fact that, you know, um, how you know the natural history of disease so you know heart failure when it first starts you're just breathless when on exertion 
Yeah. You don't get PND and all this orthopnea business until, you know, late stages. And also, um, <clears throat> we don't teach likelihood ratios. We don't teach diagnostic weights. Um, my favorite example is meningitis. Everybody thinks you have to have neck stiffness. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's only a third of patients in the UK presenting to hospital have neck stiffness with meningitis, and that could be bacterial or viral. But if you just teach medical triads, you know, meningitis is headache, fever, and meningism, which is phobia mm-hmm. and neck stiffness, then there's a nice paper which talks about the fact that you're just going to get overconfidence, premature closure and overconfidence. So um, evidence-based history and exam is this idea that um, what do we know from the current literature, the, the modern literature about how people present and how good things are. So, for example, I can tell you from studies that 25% of patients with PEs have a normal ECG, even with a large clot burden. Um, whereas I guess if you're a junior doctor, you're busy looking for S, S, whatever it is, S3. S1, Q3, T3. <laughs> I, I hate when I see that written in the notes because, you know, the actual diagnostic weight of it. I, I did exactly. see it recently, though. <laughs> <laughs> and they did have a PE. And we know from, from studies, so um, prevalence is really important. So we know from studies, humans are very prone to story bias. That means they just listen to the story. Mm-hmm. And I think you're a rheumatologist, aren't you, as well? I, I am, yes. How many temporal arteritises have you seen diagnosed in young women? Oh, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's when the referral says this 32-year-old, I'm like, oh, no. How many, <laughs> how many of those letters do I get to the acute medical unit? <laughs> so, you know, the, the prevalence of temporal arteritis in a 30-year-old woman is, is, is around zero. Yeah, very um, close to. <laughs> even if your patient has, you know, a tender left temple and the CRP is a bit up, it's not temporal arteritis. And so humans, we know, are very bad at estimating probability. And so in our teaching, it's really good to teach uh, who is my patient and to think about the prevalence of disease in the group to which the patient belongs and then adjust for their story, for their individual story. But what we tend to do is the other way around. Um and so um, that, that's another thing here. So, so actually, in this case, the, the doctor thought, you know, what causes acute unexplained breathlessness in a 75-year-old woman with cancer on chemo? If you ask any junior doctor that, they have the knowledge. Um, and, then, and then being able to interpret tests. So, so knowing that a troponin can be due to a PE um, and that a normal ECG, and in fact, that all the normal vital signs were completely consistent. So a lot of junior doctors think, oh, the, the, the SATs are normal, so it can't be a PE. You know, That's an example of evidence-based history in exam, um, knowing, knowing all that kind of stuff. And then there was the unpacking, you know, the unpacking principle that they, they got to the bottom of the story because it didn't seem to add up. So there's some skills there that, that we don't really teach so well, problem representation, critical thinking, uh, evidence-based history in exam, um, how to interpret diagnostic test results, um, those kind of things. And, and you can teach these things in, in what I call a cognitive apprenticeship. I love that phrase. <clears throat> What's really interesting about that is we know, and, and, and this is one point that maybe I'll finish with and then hand over to you guys, but we know that the case presentations of junior doctors contain errors. Because being able to identify, recognize and identify a problem in the first place is difficult for learners. And if you just take the case presentation at face value from a junior doctor, um, you are not 
picking up on the stuff they haven't identified in the first place, that they haven't identified or represented in the first place. And it's not good for their learning. Now, I know we can't do this for everyone, right? We're all busy. But um, it is a fundamental component of clinical supervision. <laughs> and going back to see the patient together, for for some cases at least, at the ones maybe where your little antennae prick up as a consultant or a senior registrar, you know, um, that is really powerful for learning and then talking about it. And so critical thinking, being able to, you can encourage people to, to develop their own internal dialogue. That's what teaching metacognition is. Um, and that can lead to improvements in decision-making, but it has to be in the context of solving problems with cases. We know that from the evidence. So, yes, I'll leave with that little bombshell because we're... <laughs> yeah, and I think that what that really reminds me of there, what that what really brought to mind is almost showing someone showing you the answer to a maths question that's wrong. Mm. And what you're actually kind of saying is they need to show they're working. Mm. If we're going to get to the bottom of how they got to that point, and it is, it's about dissecting as you say like you did with this case um to you get to the point you went now oh, that's where you've went wrong or that's the yeah. assumption you've made or you know so yeah it, yeah. it is very important isn't it and but, much as it's much as it involves time i think it's time well invested because for the future for that learner for the patients that they're going to see and the decisions that they're going to make like that's going to save them time and patience mm. sort of incorrect treatments and things in future if we start to teach people that yeah, we, I, I appreciate you are starting to teach people if this becomes more the norm i suppose it's got benefits for clinicians because as you say it's a little bit time invested but you'll probably mm -hmm. save time in the yeah. future it'll probably save tests and um, mm -hmm. so we'll save on this and i think there's a bit in in the book when we'll, we'll talk about the book in, shortly about you know um unnecessary tests for patients the kind of cognitive burden that puts on the patient on the clinician the health cost of the nhs so it's one of those things that just seems like a you know a um, perfect 10 you know it <laughs> saves things for the patients um saves time for the clinicians increases our diagnostic accuracy and hopefully avoids harm and excess cost to the nhs yeah or your exactly. health system of choice yeah yeah exactly and <laughs> um, th there's um there is a lot of research on how we teach clinical reasoning and, um, uh, you know, in the classroom and also, um, you know, in the clinical workplace, which is, is more in the book as well. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a big area. And I think the problem is that the clinical reasoning, all the literature is, is from psychology, from education, from, from diagnostic error literature, from um, different branches of psychology even. So it's very difficult for a normal clinician to to find the information all in one place um that's uh, but but there's much more of much more resources available nowadays um <laughs> but the challenge for medical schools who've tried to introduce like a longitudinal explicit theme their challenge is teaching teachers yeah that's what yeah, so we've, yes we've got to have people to actually teach them yeah. um yeah. on that note we have we have made several references to our book so would you like to tell us a little bit about the book we're talking about yeah so it's the second edition of the abc of clinical reasoning the abc series is by wiley most people would be familiar with that uh the second edition is extensively rewritten and updated and it's kind of with um with teaching and learning very much in mind as well and the latest updates on you know what we know about this that and the other um and I, I think you, you two have been reading it, haven't you? 
<laughs> yes, have been. yes, yes. Um, it's right in front of us right now. On <laughs> <laughs> this audio medium. Um, yeah, no, I, I read I read the first one and that's actually what got me uh, really interested on the topic. I think I had attended a, a talk at the Royal College that you spoke at just before the pandemic, which seems forever ago now, mm-hmm. um, which, yes, it, it has very much changed the way um, I think I, I, I I do kind of reflective stuff with my background in simulation and things like that, that I, when I was a teaching fellow. So I, you know, identified a lot of it and kind of helped take it, take it forward into my clinical practice. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's approachable. It's, yeah, if you're if you're not um, if you're new to the topic, it's still very approachable. I like your hipster claim that you were there in the first edition. I was and there I've just the- read the second edition there, <laughs> there before it was cool. But we've been told that it's been completely upgraded, so I need to read the second one as well. Um, but yeah, recommend it, and it's also um, the references in the show notes as well, so yes. that if anybody wants to look it up, um, you can see that. So. Thank you very much, Dr. Cooper. That was uh, that was great and actually like really good to be able to sort of think further around the problems and how that we sort of embed this into medical teaching. Mm-hmm. I, I think often um, people can get a bit scared off medical education and I, I think you've presented this in an entirely uh, approachable manner. Hopefully they start to think about this going forward. And as you say, I, I think we're best going forward teaching these kind of things through cases because it's a language we're all familiar with. So thank mm-hmm. you so much again. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. This has been the Medical Take Mm -hmm. um, podcast from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. You can find the college on Twitter at RCPS Glasgow um, and on their website and this podcast anywhere that you find podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Bye-bye.